Well, church, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes and dealing with this issue of Solomon. And we get to the last three sermons in this chapter that will be done three out of the next four weeks. And I, the theme of these chapters, in my opinion, as I've studied the book, is Solomon comes home. Solomon, as a young to middle-aged man, according to the Scripture, loved many foreign women who became his wives, and they turned his heart away from the singular worship of the living God, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's an amazing story in 1 Kings 11. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and so Ecclesiastes is written in a bitter reflection of what it was like to walk away from the singular worship of Jehovah God as a young to middle-aged man. And now... Solomon is coming home. He's coming home because he cannot live with the consequences of the worldview that we've called under the sun only living. And under the sun only living has, has two components of as we've discussed it. The, the first component is what we have called classical Epicureanism. Epicureanism is a belief that you should pursue pain and avoid pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion. So, so an Epicurean is not going to be in the front page of the paper because they've been involved in up, up, riotous living. But, 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 but it's, it's a socially acceptable you know, pursuit of pleasure. And I, I've said that among us. We have to be very careful about creeping Epicureanism, that we just don't give ourselves to pleasure, 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 and we... Do not countenance the reality of God. The second part of Solomon's under-the-world lifestyle view is, is that his, his marrying many foreign women, and he married 700 wives, marrying many foreign women turned his heart away from the worship of the living God as he embraced the pantheon of multiple gods that his wives brought to the royal household. And Solomon understood, regrettably, the lightness of of worshiping God, that it was no big deal. That if God is undefinable, if he's any God and every God, then ultimately that God has no authority in your life because you become your own priest and give your, if you're your own priest, you can give yourself special dispensation to do whatever you want to do. And that's what Solomon did. So, so you, you see the error of his life and, and what he's doing. So, so because of his wives and because of his unallegiance to God, he blew through the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He blew through the second commandment, don't make idols. And he blew through the third commandment, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which means that, that you handle the name and the character of God with, with a special devotion and sensitivity. And so Solomon came to this point of saying, it's no big deal. This is what I do. And so in his futile pursuit of finding a foundation upon which to stand. We've talked about four different paths he took, and I'll rehearse them very quickly. The first path he took with no foundation in truth is I'm going to be a man of wisdom. I'm going to learn. I'm going to be a man of great intellect. And chapter 1, verse 13 says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Why? Verse 17, chapter 1, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive this also is nothing but a striving after the wind. He says, trying to build your life on wisdom is like trying to catch the wind in your hand because no person can get the corner on any particular discipline no matter how hard they try. And he says this, he says, with, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
And then, so the path of wisdom. The second path he took was the path of pleasure in chapter 2. And he says in the path of pleasure, he says, I, I, had, I became a wine connoisseur. I, I, I built vineyards. I built palaces. I built roads. I had male and female singers. I had everything that could give pleasure to the heart of man. I had it all. He says, but the end result of pleasure without a foundation, pleasure as an end in and of itself, he says this in chapter 2, verse 11, then I considered all my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, it was vanity. <coughs> Excuse me. A striving after the wind, and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. Pleasure. And he said, well, I'll, I'll give myself to the dignity of labor, and labor is a calling to be dignified, but he said, I have no foundation. So I just became this entrepreneurial man who pursued success without any end result for pursuing success. And then he says this in chapter 2, verse 20, the, regarding the labor track, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil my labors have given me under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity. That's a great evil. It's no satisfaction. And the last thing I'll mention is the path of wealth. He said, I'm, gonna get, I'm just going to wealthy. Fabulously wealthy. Uh, and, he, and he did. He did. But the end result of pursuing wealth with no foundation. Chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is a vanity. It's smoke and mirrors. It's smoke and mist. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a day laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. It's an amazing statement. So all these paths with no foundation, whether it's wisdom or pleasure or labor or wealth, ultimately do not bring satisfaction. I was at an event last night and met a young couple and had a wonderful talk with them. They came to me and they said, you know, he said, I've visited the church a couple of times through the years. Can we ask you some questions about the Christian faith? I said, yeah, go for it. They said, we're just, we talked about how people are brought into a saving relationship with Christ. They had to ask me. And they were both raised in systems where they were told that, yeah, you kind of have faith, but you got to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. And they said, we can't find any peace there. I said, well, there's no peace in that. I said, you're saved by the power of the living God through the cross of Christ where the Son of God shed his blood for your sin as your sacrifice. Only. That's it. And as we just sang in here, no, no guilt in life, no fear in death. You hear, hear that? Isn't that beautiful? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From my first cry to final breath, Jesus commends, commands my destiny. Think about that. Don't forget the glory of the gospel. So, so but as I looked at them and I, I thought about them last night and this morning, I thought two young people, good looking. They've been through their graduate programs. They're in a good job market. 
And, and, and they're, at a, they're kind of at a crossroads. And either they're going to go down the road that says there is a living God and I'm to honor him and he brings joy into my life. I'm going to go down this road, the Epicurean road. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to do, pursue pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion. And if you go down that road, listen to me. Listen to Solomon. Listen to Solomon. At the end of their day, they're going to be sitting when they retire in 20, 40 or 50 years, drinking coffee in their kitchen. They're going to look at each other and say, you know, this really didn't satisfy us. It, it didn't work. It didn't work. So I think Ecclesiastes is an incredible, incredibly important lesson for us. Solomon comes home because he cannot live with the reality of his worldview. There's a quote in the worship guide from a guy named William Lane Craig who's an apologist, and he says this. I'll just read the first paragraph. If God does not exist, I'll add, or cannot be defined definitively, end of bracket, life is ultimately meaningless. If your life is doomed to end in death, then ultimately it does not matter how you live. In the end, it makes no ultimate difference whether you existed or not. Sure, your life might have a relative significance in that you influenced others or affected the course of history, but ultimately, mankind is doomed to perish in the heat, death of the universe. Ultimately, it makes no difference who you are or what you do, your life is inconsequential. You say, ah, I think, think about it. I think that's where Solomon's come from. He, he cannot bear with the, the consequences of under the sun only living. Example, think about this quote. There's a bumper sticker. Some of you have it on your car. It says, uh, coexist. It's got a picture of the, a cross and the a Jewish symbol, Islamic symbol, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever. And two thoughts. The first thought is if by coexist you mean all people should have the ability to worship as they see fit. I say amen. Amen. That, that's the first, first amendment. Uh, that is uh, part of a Baptist history. We believe in the freedom of religious expression. If a Hindu group came to Long Point Road and decided to build an ashram, our job would be to, to pray for them and love them and to bring them some donuts and coffee and to befriend them and try to share the gospel of Jesus with them, period. So, amen. If, if though, if you mean coexist, that all gods are alike, it's just we just worship him in different manifestations, nothing could be further from the scripture. And that's where Solomon's living. During, the, during his midlife and early, later, later years. It says, my wife's turned my heart away from the singular worship of God, and God was ultimately undefinable. If God is not definable, then can life really have meaning? And William Crane Lane Craig says, no, I think you need to think about that. Those of you who aren't believers or those of us who, who deal with this. So, so as I've thought through this book, here's my, my one thought, if I was going to say about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes pushes us to answer this question, how can I enjoy the good gifts of life that the Lord has given us? And we have good gifts without being overwhelmed by them or captivated by them, which I believe, my opinion, is the most significant issue we deal with in this zip code. Now, if we were in Nigeria or if we were in Cuba or North Korea, we'd be studying the Christian and persecution all the time. We'd be studying 1 Peter all the time. But, but here I think the issue is how do we enjoy the good gifts of God without being captivated and captured by them is a huge issue. 
And that's why this book is so powerful. And this really had hands and feet as I thought about it in my life. So I find Ecclesiastes has a counterpart, and it's in the book of Matthew. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus talks about wealth and money and the heart's disposition. For example, it says in chapter 6, verse 19, after he's talking about spiritual disciplines of, of giving and prayer and fasting, he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal only. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't live only under the sun. Live with eternity in view. Lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not break, uh, break in and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye, what we look at, is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are sound, your whole body will be flooded with light. But if your eyes are bad, how vast is the darkness within you. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Either, he says, you will cling to the one and despise the other, or you will love the one and hate the other. And, and it, you take out money and put wisdom, you put pleasure, you put wealth, you put labor. This is things we struggle with. And then he goes on and says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is the issue for us. I'm telling you, this is where we live. And so when I say that Solomon comes home, it's a powerful statement. I was reading this in a political journal recently written by a guy that's not a believer. And I thought, man, he nails it. This is what he says. One of the oldest critiques of modernity is the claim that it breeds a kind of numbness, numbness to the soul. We become seized or grasped by the demands of the disenchanted modern world, see, under the sun, and we turn, in turn become deadened to the important things that give life meaning. There's a numbness to the soul. He says he's, he's not a believer. There's a numbness to the soul that comes when the when these things grip our hearts and our minds, that leads to deadness. So Solomon comes home. So when I say Solomon comes home, I'm going to give you just a couple of principles here. Today, more to come. Listen to chapter 11, just a few verses. Verse 1. Cast your bread upon the water, and for, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. Verse 6, in the morning... Sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So, well, wow, what does that mean? Well, first of all, verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, and for you will find it after many days. Um, one commentary says this is a metaphor without any contemporary parallels, which means that who knows what this means. I'll tell you what, some people say, they look at this and they kind of smile and say, this means to diversify your stock portfolio. You know, cast it to seven or eight places, not just to one place. Well, what does it mean to cast your breads upon the water and it will come back to you? Here's what I think it means. Give your life away. 
Give your life away. Give your life away to, to, to people, to the kingdom of God. Give your life to significance. You find the echo in the New Testament. Jesus says with crystal clear clarity. It's not a metaphor without parallel. He says with crystal clear authority. Whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or Isaiah says in the Old Testament, chapter 58, he who gives, give yourself to the disenfranchised and those who are hurting. And as you, as you give yourself away, your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like the midday. It's pretty clear. Or in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Christ says this. He says, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, pouring over, flowing into your laps. Give your life away. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, let me tell you something. These concepts, if you lose your life, you'll find it. If you find your life, you'll lose it. Uh, give your life away. No, no, nobody's going to say that unless they're seriously reading the Bible. You're not going to hear that anywhere else. It just sounds weird. Because we live in a culture that's all about pleasure and me. And yet Solomon says here, if you really want to prosper, if you really want to taste life, give your life away. Love people. Serve people. Live for the glory of God. See, this is like going to a fitness convention and standing up and advocating an M&M diet. A candy diet. And people say, you're, you're, this guy's crazy. The Holy Spirit has got to give you ears to hear this stuff. Give it away. So, a few months ago, one of my favorite people passed away, a man named R.C. Sproul. R.C. was a champion of biblical fidelity for decades from Pittsburgh, a wonderful teacher. And as a very young man, R.C. Um, adopted a monthly that became a weekly uh, commentary that became a blog post. And it was entitled, Right Now, counts forever, which was, was, was wonderful about these thing, things is, is that the, the thesis is stated in that little statement, right now counts forever. And then I thought about a man named Francis Schaeffer, who was, has been very instrumental and important to me. Francis Schaeffer, when I first became a believer, I was introduced to Schaeffer. And Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, or an article, a sermon entitled, No Little People and No Little Places. And again, the sermon title is the thesis. No, there are no little people, and there are no little places in the kingdom of God. And he says in his sermon, as, as there are no little people in God's sight, so there are no little places to be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants him. That is the creature glorified. And what I'm, you count in, 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 in your struggles and Talked to parents, some parents recently whose child is, their other child is breaking their heart. And, and in the midst of their tears, I thought, isn't it glorious that the Bible says that God even stores up our tears? No, nothing's wasted. God, God uses our weepings, our, our heart sorrows. 
right now counts forever. But if, if you were to look at an Epicurean, instead of saying right now counts forever, they'd say right now counts maybe. Well, we don't know. It's under the sun. Ah, who knows? Or if you were talking to an Epicurean, instead of saying there are no little people, no little places, they would say something like this. Well, there are a lot of little people, and there are a lot of little places. There are a lot of losers in life. I'm a winner. And how different is our worldview? And then the other thing about finding life is he talks about the mere observer versus the go for it person. Listen to the, the mere observer says, you know, verse three, if the clouds are full of, full of rain, they will enter themselves upon the earth. Well, thanks for that. There's black clouds out there. It's going to rain. Well, thank you. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in that place it will lie in the forest. Well, thank you for that. Another observation, he says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. They just observe, and they, they're, they're kind of cynical, and they say this makes no difference, and so forth and so on. Verse 6, in the morning, though, when you have an eternal worldview, you sow your seed, and at evening you withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What he's saying is, go for it. Go for it. Live with a sense of calling and under the, understand what is done for Christ is never done in vain. The word of God doesn't return void. You, you, you go for it. You embrace your calling and your life. Because right now counts forever. Because there are no little people and no little places. And I want to be around people who, who say, let, 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 let's, let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's honor, let's honor the living God. So last week, I was in, on the West Coast with my son and his family. We had a wonderful time. And so we got to, uh, I got to watch the Louisville-Clemson game with my son. We both like Clemson. And uh, 9 o'clock kickoff on the West Coast. That's sweet. I mean, sweet. The, 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 the nighttime game starts at 5 o'clock. You go to bed at 8.30 and watch football all day long. It's really wonderful. So we're watching Clemson-Louisville. Clemson, if, 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 you know, if you haven't heard, they won. Barely, but they won. And uh, they get the ball, they score, boom. And then Louisville gets the, then, then Louisville gets the ball, they, they're stopped, and they have to punt. And a, Clem, a Louisville player makes an incredible athletic tackle of the Clemson punt returner. It was, just, it was, a, it was an incredible athletic move, and I thought, Wow. And the announcer said, man, that was an incredible tackle. He gets up and he walks to his bench. Nobody hits him on the helmet. Nobody chest thumps him. Nobody smacks him on the back and he sits down. I looked at my son and said, this game is over. It's over. Because on the other sideline, they're dancing. I'm serious. They dance. I'm, they're going to start giving out pizza over there. They're just, they're, they're having a party. See, see, I want to be around people who, when you, when you do something for Jesus, you get a pat on the back. You get a high five. You don't brag about it, but they say, go for it. That was good. That, man, that was good. I don't want to be on a team where people just say, oh, well, it doesn't make any difference. We're going to get shellacked. We lost to Wake Forest, for heaven's sake. Sure, they're going to beat us. Embrace your calling. Embrace where you are in life. That's what Schaefer said. Embrace your young people. Listen, young parents. I, young parents embrace your calling. 
It's exhausting. I know. I, um, we just spent several days with two beautiful grandchildren. One is three in a few months and one is 16 months. And it's wild. You forget the enormous energy outlay of, young, of, of the parents. Thank, thank you, parents. Thank you, young parents. I mean, it's, man, take your vitamins and go for it, you know. Drink your Red Bull and just let it fly. But I was, so, so Zach and Chelsea, my son and his wife, live, live about 12 miles from the nearest grocery store. So we would say, their work was, let's make a grocery store run. And, and so we changed clothes, put on coats, put on shoes. And the 16-month-old girl loves to take off her shoes and socks. That's just what she does. That's who she is. And, and so you have to put on her shoes and socks three times before you get out the door. And I call her Cinderella. This shoe fits. I'm so glad, Cinderella, that thing. And then you get in the car and you check your watch and you realize that, that really by the time you dress and undress and dress and undress and take them to the grocery store and come back, you could have done it three times without them. It's just, it's just incredible. Like one mother says, I look so peaceful when my child is sleeping. <laughs> anyway, so, so thank you, young parents. And I got a word. I got a word for young people who, and some of you may be here, don't be offended, but I'm just going to lay it out who say, I'm not going to have kids. It's, the world's too messed up. And that's a lie. That's, have kids if you're able. Have children. Be fruitful and multiply. D don't buy the lie. Raise warriors for Jesus that will stand for him in an Epicurean culture that refuses to define God. Rethink it and go home today and get after it, okay? This afternoon, the, the day's still young, okay? Anyway, embrace your calling. And that's the point, okay? It, listen, it, embrace it with joy. See, embrace it with joy. Uh, Solomon's saying here, you know, here's this guy that's been glum and cynical. And he says, listen, he says, he says just, just in the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know what will prosper. Just, just give it up. And I was thinking about that. So I'm, I'm studying this text and I'm thinking about it. I'm going, how do I apply this? And that's the beautiful thing about studying the Bible. You're always trying to apply it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I had a couple of things that happened to me this week. I've, I had to call somebody about a, to explain a bill that I had. And so I talked to this woman on the phone and I said, how about this and this and this? And she explained it with great detail and graciousness. And I said, I understand can I give you my credit card number now? She says, yes, I'm ready to take it, so forth and so on. And that's all we did, all that. I said, ma'am, can I say something? I said, I, I know you, answer, you have to answer silly questions all the time from people like me. I want to thank you. You are so kind and gracious and forbearing. I appreciate it. Stunned silence. And she says, thank you for saying that. I never hear that. And I says, God bless you, man. She says, God bless you. And then we wept together on the phone. It was great. <laughs> another, another example, I'm, I'm leaving the store in Wenatchee, Washington. There's a young guy checking us out. He's a high school kid. His name is Eli. Eli. And so I go, man, I love your name. Thinking about this. How do be kind? I love your name, man. So, oh, thank you. So is that, is that for Elijah or is it just is it Eli? He says, well, no, my parents just named me Eli. I said, this is a great name. I like it. I like it a lot. I said, one of my favorite people in the Bible is in the Old Testament. His name is Elijah. He was a man. And he went, that's me. 
You know? I mean, you know, that takes nothing. Be kind. Be gracious. Be thankful. Because God's going to use that. This, this is what Solomon's saying. This man has been down every path imaginable. See, one thing that, had, 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 that torments Solomon is, is, does my life really count? He says two times in his book, he says, you know, nobody's going to remember me after I die. Nobody's going to remember the type of person I was. And it torments him. Again, I was thinking about that and I was reading a book this week about a guy named, and involved how we treated Native Americans in the aftermath of the revolution, or excuse me, Civil War, and how now we say they were treated horribly. And there's a man named General George Crook, who was a Union officer in the war between the states, highly decorated, and after the war, he went west to be someone who would help with the migration and the transportation of the Indians and or Native Americans, and he became a very harsh critic of the government and an advocate for the Native Americans. So the way we're treating these people is unconscionable. And he just he stood up for the disenfranchised. General George Crook, known as a man of integrity, a man of courage, and he had a young guy on his staff that he mentored and who went throughout his life saying, the man that shaped my character was George Crook, and that young man's name was Rutherford B. Hayes, who became president of the United States. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, I was a history major. I love history. I've never heard of George Crook till, till this week. And I thought, if, if people have never heard of General George Crook, who was incredible, what about us? What about us? See, and if you have it under the sun only, you say, it's, it's just not worth it. But if you have an eternal perspective, then you say, we will be remembered. Let me just read a few verses in the worship guide. Galatians 6. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You hear that? You're going to reap. Therefore, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are believers. Or Matthew 25, Christ says, when you visit, when you visit people in the hospital, when you clothe people without clothes, when you went to the prison, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you care for people in some way, you're mystically touching the reality of Christ. It's amazing. Or Hebrews 6, in a very difficult passage, verse 10 says, For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God, God doesn't overlook these things. 1 Corinthians 15, in light of the resurrection of Jesus, he says, Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Listen, your labor isn't in vain. What you do in caring and loving and serving and representing Christ is not in vain. And so we live as people of destiny. We live with people of high calling. Uh, 1553 to 1558. In English history, there was a queen named Mary. She's received the appellation Bloody Mary. 
She was only queen for five years, and then there's a woman named Elizabeth I who came in, and she was queen from 1558 to 1603. And now we have Elizabeth II there. So Mary hated the gospel. She loved the state control of the church and didn't like the free communication of the gospel. And so she started gathering all of these preachers, and she said, if you do not quit preaching the gospel, you're going, to be, you're going to be put to death. And the first person to be put to death of 300 to 350 preachers was a guy named John Rogers. And I was reading a historical account of Rogers' death this week. Listen, in January 1554, John Rogers uh, was dragged before the magistrate. He was asked, quote, to revoke his abominable doctrine of justification by faith close quote. Fearless to the last, he stuck to his guns and he said, that which I have preached, I am willing to seal with my own blood. And one of the investigators said, you're a heretic. I will never pray for you. And Roger said, but sir, I will pray for you. Later that day, he was taken to Smithfield singing psalms as he went to be executed on his way. His wife and 11 children, think about that, 11 kids, were waiting, but not even the sight of his family could disturb his conviction. Before a great number of people, he was burnt to ashes, washing his hands in the flame as he was burning. He was constantly, he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Rogers. I thought, there's a man who lives with an eternal perspective. He's living for more than under the sun. Church, 100 years ago today, today, World War I ended. Uh, World War I is a war that we entered into late, later in the last two years, we, but we still lost 117,000 men. We lost 26,000 in one day in France. We think about the other countries. That, that we, at that time, our population was 92 million. England, population of 45 million, lost 905,000. France, population of 40 million, lost 1.4 million people, including 200,000 civilians. The war was fought in France. Serbia, a nation of 4.5 million, lost 350,000 men. How do you ever recover from that? How do you recover from that? But in the context of this war, there was a poem written by a Canadian physician who loved poetry. His name was John McRae. John McRae was a surgeon. He was operating a hospital right next to the front lines, to the trench warfare. And he said in the midst of this poem that he had operated 17 straight days without a break. He said sometimes they didn't even change their clothes. They would just fall asleep between surgeries. It was that bad. And in the midst of this, this Canadian physician received word that his very best friend had been killed in battle. And Dr. John McRae, who two years later would die of pneumonia on the front in France in 1918, went out back and he sat and as he grieved, he, this man who loved poetry took out a piece of paper and wrote down some lines and 
shook his head and dropped it in a wastebasket and went back in to operate. And some people saw that and they picked up the paper and they read it. And they were so absolutely thunderstruck with what he said that they copied it and sent it to the New York Times. And it became the most well-known poem of that era. And it's called In Flanders Fields. Listen to it. It's just three stanzas. In, in Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row by row that mark our place. And in the sky, the lark still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, saw dawn, and felt sunset glow. We were loved. We, were, we loved and were loved, but now we lie in Flanders Fields. Take up our cause against the foe. To you, with failing hands we flow. The torch be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we will not rest, though poppies grow in Flanders' field. What are you saying is this? To take up our quarrel against the foe. To you, from failing hands we flow. He says, our hands are failing. He says, I've been doing surgery month after month after month. I'm tired. We're passing the torch on. And I think about the torch passing experience that goes on in the church week after week after week as older people say, go for it, go for it, go for it. Live in such a way that you live faithfully for your generation and the generations to come. These babies we dedicated this morning. Live in such a way that they have an example of fidelity and biblical trust and bold-hearted discipleship that marks their days. That's who we are. To you, take up our cause against the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we will not rest. The poppies blow in Flanders fields. So we talk about disciples, a forgiven sinner, who is always learning Jesus in repentance and faith, and he's moving in further into the light. So I, I read this and I say, you know, how did Solomon come home? Well, you give your life away. You live for that which really counts, for something that's, that's strong and eternal. That, that, that you're not a mere observer, but you're somebody who sows the seed and you go for it. Solomon came home. Some of us need to come home. Some of us have been living as Epicureans. No giving, no serving. It's all about me. Come, come home. Come home to life and, and liberty and joy. the liberating joy of knowing Jesus. I love Ecclesiastes, man, I do. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day uh, that you've given us. Thank you for the incredible privilege of just opening the Bible and reading it and knowing that we're listening to you. And uh, I pray that that you would keep us from being wrong in our understanding or interpretation. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us what it means to take a step further into the light from all of us, all of us, all of us. Because it's all about change by the power that you bring, Holy Spirit. So, so teach us to take a, a step into the light. We thank you for the, the brutal honesty of this guy named Solomon, that he's just holding out his dirty laundry and saying, look what happened to me. And I pray that we would not go there. And I pray that if we've gone there, we'd come home. Uh, come home. Come home. So we thank you uh, that, that we can sit and ponder and think. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, your work in our lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen.